0: Good morning and welcome to another edition of China Takes Over the World. I am Ying Ma. We are delighted to have with us today Jeff Dyer of the Financial Times. He's the paper's former China bureau chief and author of The Contest of the Century, The New Era of Competition with China and How America Can Win. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you so much for
0: having me. Well, amid all the tensions over Crimea and eastern Ukraine, President Vladimir Putin visited China uh, on May 20th to 21st and brought home what many people consider a huge foreign policy triumph, um a $400 billion gas supply agreement with China. After this gas deal was announced, Alexei Pushkov, chairman of Russia's um, Parliament's Committee on International Affairs, and one of the people on the U.S. sanctions list wrote on his Twitter account, quote, the 30 year gas contract with China is of strategic significance. B. Obama should give up his policy of isolating Russia. It won't work, unquote. Um, Jeff, are we seeing here Russia's version of the pivot to Asia?
1: Um, well, certainly in the short term, this is a very effective political move by the Russians, because in the context of the Ukraine crisis, what the U.S. has been trying to do is to, together with the European Union, to try and isolate Russia, some of economically and diplomatically as well. So there is a G7 summit tomorrow where but Russia will not be there. It's just been kicked out for what used to be the G8. So it was a very good move for Putin to be able to go to China to meet Xi Jinping in Shanghai and to show the world that he still has very big, powerful, important friends that he hasn't been isolated. So the short term, that worked very well for him. But in the long term, it's not at all clear exactly how Russia will really play out in its relationship with China. Um, there are lots of reasons why the two countries might end up as rivals as much as they will be as partners. Russia's very worried about Chinese influence in Central Asia. It's worried about Chinese influence in Eastern Siberia, where there's very few Russians living there, but just across the border. And in Northern China, there are you know, very large populations and very economically dynamic population that's, that's gradually encroaching into Eastern Siberia. And they're very worried that China will wind up as being the dominant power in the Western Pacific as well, just as lots of other Asian countries are. So, so Russia's been doing two things in the last few years. It has been getting closer to China, which it sees as they both see that as a way of pushing back against US influence in the world. But it's also been getting close to a lot of China's rivals in Asia as well. The the the, the Russian relationship with Japan has improved in the last couple of years. Russia has sold submarines to Vietnam, uh, which are the Vietnamese are hope to use to push back against Chinese influence. So Russia's really trying to play it two ways. It's getting closer to China, but it does not want to be sort of junior partner to China, so that's really the ultimate. Sure, one the sure.
0: Well um for For both Russia and China, they've griped about the excess or what they perceive as the excess of American power for quite some time. Um, Does this gas deal look like the most concrete example of the two of them banding together to kind of thumb their nose, so to speak, at the U.S.-led world order, despite all the other disagreements they may
1: have? Um very much is one of the most concrete examples. I mean, in the context is that they've been haggling over this for 10 years and never quite been able to do the deal. So the fact that they now do seem to have done the deal is a big sign that they're getting politically closer together. But really, for the last decade, they've lived in other ways, they have worked quite close together in ways that have sometimes been against U.S. or Western interests. That's particularly been the case at the United Nations. So a decade ago when you had a lot of controversy over Sudan, China tried to stop um, greater outside intervention in Sudan, which Sudan is a very important uh, customer, a very important area of Chinese investment. And Russia gave it political cover there. In the last few years in Syria, the Russians have been wanted to prevent much greater U.S. or outside intervention in the Syrian civil war. And the Chinese have given them cover at the U.N. So that access at the U.N. of preventing what they see is very zealous. Western interventionism has really been something that's been operating quite effectively for more than a decade and is likely to continue so. But I think that this new gas deal just gives the whole sense of a, a partnership between Russia and China even more substance.
0: Well, even before this gas deal, Chinese President Xi Jinping chose Russia as the first foreign country he visited after taking office. Do you think that the closer relationship between China and Russia is part of China's strategic response to the Obama administration's pivot to asia
1: yeah, china's playing a slightly different game here and i think um the, you know the fact that she went to russia first was precisely as you say it was a way of pushing back against the u.s pivot um, it was a, a way of showing that it also has lots of other options but while russia has been quite happy uh, or has been you know uh, been prepared to let its relationship with the u.s and relationship with the west deteriorate quite rapidly china is much more reluctant to do that so we'll do things that will seem sometimes anti-Western, but we much less aggressive and much less, uh, forefront, for, uh, forthright about displaying a very, very, you know, obviously anti-Western agenda. Um, so in that sense, the, the Chinese game is more subtle, it's more long-term, it's more careful, it's not quite as sort of in your face as Vladimir Putin's Russia.
0: And um, you mentioned earlier Russia's activities that may uh, anger China in some way. So, for instance, it's cozying up to China's neighbors who have territorial disputes with China. Um, For instance, it's uh, forging closer relationships with Vietnam and perhaps Japan. have you seen the Chinese respond in any concrete way to these not-so-subtle Russian efforts to kind of undermine their assertiveness and, and influence in Asia?
1: They certainly haven't responded in the, in the way they would respond to any U.S. moves where they tend to be much more sort of publicly critical. Um, but in a way, you know, the the deal from the Chinese side is a way of actually sort of gaining favor with Russia and persuading the Russians um, maybe not to be quite so forthright in supporting some of their rivals. And one of the other fallout of the Ukraine crisis is that Japan, which was a very close US ally, has really had to scupper its attempts at a rapprochement with with Russia. Um, it's really fallen in line, if you like, with the Western alliance, and it's it supported the sanctions against Russia. So that 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 rapprochement that had been going on for the previous year between. Prime Minister Abe and President Putin, and which had seemed to be gathering pace, that's certainly been put on hold, at least for the time being. And if the Ukraine crisis gets a lot worse, it would be very hard to see that actually going anywhere. So, so again, you know, the Ukraine crisis has played out doubly well in the sense that the Chinese, they've managed to sign a very big gas deal. Russia has become more willing to sign the gas deal with them. And then, you know, they've seen you know, Japan's efforts to get closer to Russia also certainly hit a wall as well.
0: We are speaking with Jeff Dyer of the Financial Times and author of Contest of the Century. Please send us your comments at facebook.com slash China Takes Over or on Twitter at Rising China. Well, Jeff, let's talk about your book a bit. Uh, Since the subtitle is The New Era of Competition with China and How America Can Win, perhaps you can tell us a bit about what areas the competition is uh, most intense and how is um, the competition shaping up to be the contest of the century?
1: Well, I think the the most intense area is this sort of growing military strategic competition in the Western Pacific. Um, China over the last 20 years has increased its military budget by double figures pretty much every year. Um, And within that Big increase in military spending. The Navy has gained the the most attention. And China's been very deliberately putting in place a strategy to try and gain more control over the East China Sea, the South China Sea, uh, to sort of push the U.S. further out to sea, to, to push it outside of that very stronghold that it has uh, in the Asia-Pacific region. And the hopes that ultimately, over time, if it's able to do that, it will exert more control over its neighbours, over Japan, over South Korea, over the Philippines and Vietnam, and more control over the politics of Asia. So this is, although this has really sort of come to a head in the last two or three years with all these various spats over the Chicago Islands and uh, with the Japanese and then the South China Sea, it's really a much a sort of long, long-rooted, long deeper, uh, long-term strategy that China has been deploying trying to put in place the kind of military assets will allow it to do that uh, and, and so it, you know we're really seeing that really come to a head in the last few years so China now really has a kind of naval force where it can say, oh, it thinks it can try to exert that kind of influence over over its neighbors and just trying to put the theory into practice
0: do you do you think America should guide and accommodate China's rise and if, if so, how do you think it should do that?
1: That's, a, that's a, a very interesting question, but also a very complicated question. I mean, the Americans would say that ever since Nixon met Mao in the early seventies, that the US has been accommodating China's rise. That they've done all sorts of things to allow China to become this economic juggernaut, um, allowing it to trade openly, uh, you know, letting China into the WTO in the late nineties. A whole series of things that the US have done. They said that they've been trying to trying to accommodate China, let it into the international system in ways that other rising great powers in, in history weren't quite so fortunate. But now we're reaching a kind of crunch point where these, these these more strategic questions about Asian geopolitics are coming to a head, and that's really much harder to see. I mean, there's a theoretical argument that says, yes, you know, the U.S. does have to accommodate China, but it's actually quite hard to put that into practice. What does that actually mean? Because a lot of the things that China wants are not necessarily the U.S. is to give. Um, the U.S. can't even if the U.S. wanted to completely give up on Taiwan, and can't actually give control of Taiwan to the Chinese. That will ultimately be up to the, the Chinese persuading the Taiwanese people. Um, and if the U.S. was to you know, accommodate too far, the, the danger would be that you get a very, very uh, strong backlash from other countries in Asia, that the Japanese might decide to you know, develop their own nuclear weapons. The Vietnamese would invest right heavily in the military if they felt that the U.S. was getting too close to China. So, so, even though there's a theoretical case to say that the U.S. should try and accommodate China, if it goes too far, it's actually even more destabilizing and could set up a much more aggressive arms race in Asia. So, So how?
0: Sure. So, how can America win the contest of the century?
1: Well, in this, uh, in in this sort of Asian geopolitical aspect, the. the, the, best medium term strategy for the US is to have very good relationships, as so good relationship as we can with most of China's neighbours, including its traditional allies like the Japanese and South Koreans, but also countries like Vietnam, with Malaysia, with Indonesia. And with China sees an environment where there is a very strong opposition to becoming the completely dominant power. If it realizes there'll be a very strong backlash if it tries to push too hard, then that will provide a very big restraint. On China, and while the U.S. still to play a very strong role. The big advantage that the U.S. has is that most other countries in Asia want pretty much the same things that the U.S. has, that the U.S. also wants for Asia. They want free trade, they want freedom of navigation, and they want a political system where smaller countries are not bullied by big countries. So the big advantage has is that it's, it's offering things that most other, um, other countries in Asia want, and that's a big dilemma for China, as though, but it sees itself as historically as a natural big power in Asia. But there's a lot of worry about what a, a big and dominant and powerful China would mean. And so there's a very strong potential backlash against China if it pushes its claims too hard.
0: Right. We've been speaking with Jeff Dyer of the Financial Times and author of Contest of the Century. Jeff, thank you for chatting with us. My pleasure. Please send us your comments at facebook.com slash China Takes Over or on Twitter at Rising China. This is China Takes Over the World and I am Ying Ma. Good morning. Thanks for tuning in to China Takes Over the World. I am Ying Ma. As we discussed earlier in the show, China and Russia recently inked a $400 billion natural gas supply contract. The deal brings to a close negotiations between Beijing and Moscow that had uh, gone on for over a decade. With us to discuss the economics of this momentous deal and the implications for energy security is Ed Chao of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mr. Chow. Is a senior fellow of the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. Ed, great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. Well, the exact. Price terms of the deal are being kept secret. We do know that the contract is signed between Russia's Gazprom and China's National Petroleum Corporation, and and it calls for Russia to supply to China 38 billion cubic meters of gas each year for 30 years. Just talking about the economics here, do you think Russia or China got a better bargain?
2: Um, well, I would say, first, Ying, that um, the economic Numbers must have been very hard for both sides, which is why the negotiations took as long as 10 years to conclude, even though the strategic advantages for both sides may have been apparent all along. Uh, the numbers are, were just from a, a pure business economic point of view, very, very difficult. Uh, in order to do this deal, Russia is going to have to develop. Uh, two new um, gas fields in eastern Siberia, they're going to have to build a very expensive and long uh, pipeline to the Chinese border in the northeast of China. Um, and uh, Russia estimates that it's going to cost somewhere in the neighborhood of 55 billion dollars for them to do this deal. Uh, so this is this is not easy. Uh, from a Chinese point of view, uh, bringing this gas to the um, uh, to the northeast is also going to be quite expensive. Um, the Russians are demanding have been demanding a price, obviously. Um, that compensate them for making the large investments they have to to make. Um, This will be not very cheap gas from a Chinese point of view. It may even be slightly more expensive than the gas that China currently buys from Turkmenistan in Central Asia. Um, It brings gas um, not necessarily to the prime Uh, consuming areas in China, which as you know is along the coast and not in the interior. So the numbers were very not, was never that easy, uh, to arrive at, um, which is why they, they took so long. Um, on the other hand, um, because of the particular political situation that Russia finds itself in, um, as a result of the Ukraine crisis and the annexation of Crimea, it was very important for Mr. Putin to demonstrate to the world that he is not isolated. Uh, he needs to make a big deal. He needs to make a big deal before the annual St. Petersburg uh, Economic Forum, uh, which is kind of his baby. Um, and so there was a strong... Uh, need on Russia's part to close the deal this time, so I imagine that the Chinese were pretty tough negotiators as they always are uh, on this deal. Um, well, well, you
0: you mentioned yeah. that most likely China is getting something that's. Slightly more expensive from this deal than what it gets from Turkmenistan. Um, since China is viewed to be in the better bargaining position right now for all the reasons you just discussed, um, are we, and, and I know this is difficult to do, but is there any way we can put a number or a figure on, on the concession that Russia made in this deal for strategic reasons, for all the strategic reasons that matter uh, to Putin right now. I but think they Putin probably right came
2: now. a lot closer to uh, competing with the Central Asian price than they wanted to be. Um, so you know, I, I, I think uh, from a Russian point of view, um, they, they probably had went as far as they could have on lowering the price in order for the Chinese uh, to, to, to make the agreement. Uh, remember, the Chinese domestic gas prices are much lower than the imported gas price. This is something that CNPC has been complaining about for a long, long time on Russian gas, on, on Central Asian gas uh the l n g has the advantage where the Chinese government allows an l n g buyer to sell directly to the domestic market without be having the price regulated. China is in the midst of um gas pricing reform right now uh as well as uh, as you your listeners know. Uh, state enterprise reform uh, at the same time. So this is very much of a mixed picture. Um, it may be that we will never know what the final price is or even what was involved in the bargaining besides just the price of gas. Well,
0: well if I could just dwell on this, um, the, the terms of this deal for, for a minute longer, um, Gazprom has said that the deal includes a pricing formula linked to the price of crude oil, and this was something that it has sought all Along and something that Beijing has uh, had to resisted previously, how much of this pricing formula really is in Gazprom's favor? In, in are, uh, you say, <laughs> are, are you surprised? Are you surprised that Beijing actually agreed no, to
2: this? No. Okay. Um, if that's mostly Gazprom's spin, uh, <laughs> from my point of view,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, they had agreed to the um, uh, pr- uh, oil price indexation was some time ago. Um, and and uh, the it, the oil price indexation has more to do with the uh, price es- escalation clause of uh, how prices will be adjusted over time. It doesn't have anything to do with the starting price uh, for, for gas, which is what they have been bargaining uh, on for the better part of a year now uh, since Xi Jinping's first trip to Moscow as president um in march uh, i believe of of 2013 uh so um a, a for its own reasons are uh, uh, putting the best face forward um uh, on 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 this uh project from their point of view uh interestingly the chinese side has mostly not confirmed a lot of the details <laughs> of gas the so you know yeah, well, well, we, it's their their si- silence is is actually uh, uh, rather loud uh, <laughs> for those of us who watch this closely. Gazprom, for example, also claim uh, that they have an agreement to increase volume uh, to uh, through a Western route, which the Chinese side doesn't like at all, uh, to 60 or 68 uh, billion cubic meters per year, and that. The, the Chinese I have conspicuously not confirmed.
0: <laughs> we are speaking with Mr. Ed Chow, Senior Fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Please join the conversation at facebook.com slash China Takes Over or on Twitter at Rising China. When the Gas begins flowing. Uh, The deal would supply more than uh, one-fifth of China's gas consumption last year. How significant do you think this is in China's efforts to reduce its domestic reliance on coal?
2: What... Gas, and, and where we're talking about Russian gas, into Asian gas, or, or liquefied natural gas imports along the coast, um, imports which are slated to increase uh, for China, does is really to bend the growth uh, rate of, of coal consumption in China. It won't actually reduce coal consumption by anyone's estimate. Um, It it really just reduces the the rate of growth. Uh, And and bending the curve is important, but it doesn't solve all of uh, China's um, uh, environmental concerns having to do with the reliance on coal, particularly in the power sector, and and all the uh, environmental problems uh, that it causes. Um, and and so there will uh, in addition to uh importing more natural gas as well as producing more natural gas domestically china would have to find other means of uh, reducing the environmental degre- degradation in the country.
0: Sure. It, China has looked elsewhere uh, and no doubt continues to look elsewhere for gas supplies. Uh, how will this deal affect liquefied natural gas suppliers from the U.S. or Canada or Australia that are looking to export to China?
2: Um, uh, I, I think um China in terms of its growth in its LNG receiving uh terminal capacity there's regasification gasification capacity, uh, it, it, there's pretty robust growth, um, pretty much close to doubling uh, current um, capacity uh, is already uh, either being built or at least in the drawing boards. So there will be plenty of capacity to import more LNG um, in the future. Uh, what really matters beyond 2020 is to what extent China is successful in increasing domestic natural gas uh, production, uh, including shale gas production, which uh, are unconventional gas production, where there is a a lot of optimism in China uh, right now. If it were able to do so, then um, there may not be as much increase in in, in, uh, gas imports Um, and China will begin to rely more on domestically produced gas. If it's unable to do that for whatever reason, and it will take a number of years before we know for sure, then gas imports will will start to grow again beyond 2020.
0: How should Europe look at this deal? At the moment it gets about, um, I believe, about 30% of its gas from Gazprom, should Europe ramp up its efforts to diversify its gas supplies?
2: Um, of course europe it has talking is talking about uh doing this uh for quite some time now, and the Ukraine crisis really sort of concentrate one's mind uh on and and
0: sure, and obviously that's something that uh drove the deal across the finish line as well
2: um i I think it certainly uh, uh did um have have an effect um, particularly on on the Russian eagerness, <laughs> uh to conclude the deal uh sooner rather than than later so some of what you're saying about uh, Europe is already going on uh just today uh the the german government uh, um, announced that they uh, will um, lift a what has effectively been a fracking ban uh, for shale gas in in, in Germany. So um, that direction has been going on for some time. This deal actually doesn't directly impact it because there'll be you'll be drawing gas from uh, two East Siberian gas fields that hasn't been developed yet. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese, one of the Chinese insistence was that the supply comes from dedicated fields. So you actually won't be drawing any gas from Western Siberia where most of the uh, European uh, imports of Russian gas come from.
0: So should we view this as a win-win deal not just for China, Russia, but also for energy security in in the world since the gas deal does not call for diverting any gas from that currently is, you know, is
2: slated for Europe. I mean, the fundamentals of the situation is that Russia is a very large oil and gas, as well as just energy producer in general. Uh, China, Asia uh, in general, not only China but India uh, and and other uh, rapidly uh, growing countries have an increasing appetite uh, for uh, energy that cannot be satisfied uh, by their domestic sources uh, solely. So they're going to be importing more gas uh, and oil, and, and more supply is, is, is good for the global uh, economy. Um, the circumstances under which this deal is signed, um, whether that's sustainable or not, and, and we'll have to see. Um, you know, Russian large energy projects in Russia uh has shall we say a mixed record <laughs> as to how um effectively and efficiently um uh, uh they they are completed um Gazprom is very optimistically saying uh, gas will flow in four years my guess it will be closer to six um uh, be, before that 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 actually happens so maybe between 4 to 6 years uh this uh, we'll actually see gas flowing from this deal and it's not a bad thing uh for for the world uh for, for sure uh it worries me a little bit when um commercial economic deals are made at a political level uh because then you think about you know what other political costs um, um uh, are attached to it. I'll be much happier if they are done on a business to business basis than rather than during a presidential visit. <laughs> uh,
0: well, of course, unfortunately, we, we know that both of the companies involved are state-owned enterprises. Uh, so, um, so, unfortunately, <laughs> that's
2: not the world we live in. <laughs> right,
0: right. Well, we've been speaking with Mr. Ed Chow, Senior Fellow of the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. Ed, thank you very much for chatting with us.
2: My pleasure.
0: Uh, Again, please send us your comments at facebook.com slash China Takes Over or on Twitter at Rising China. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma.